0: Hello, and welcome to Cloud Automation Weekly. My name is Thorsten Höger, and I'm here to talk about automating your AWS cloud infrastructure. Today, I'm joined by Luc van Good to talk about the event driven architectures. Luc, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, hey, Thorsten. Thanks for having me.
0: For folks who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm, well, Luc van Dankesgoed. I work as a lead engineer at PostNL, which is the Dutch postal service. Um, I have a strong background in AWS and event-driven architectures. I'm an AWS serverless hero, so yeah, my focus is mostly on uh, on serverless technology, and of course, there there's a lot of overlap with event-driven architectures. There
0: yeah, sounds great. So we now mentioned uh, this word uh, both. So what is event-driven architectures?
1: Event-driven architectures, um, I would say, well, it goes hand-in-hand with, with serverless, although event-driven architectures is a broader uh, term. But the idea is uh, that systems only start responding or only are only triggered when an event occurs. So it's, it's also very much, it, it also very much goes hand-in-hand with cloud nativeness, where you don't have a, a server or a, a cluster of, of, uh, of servers waiting for something to happen and just idling all the time, there's sort of nothing until an event occurs and then the system responds to it. And that that requires a, a different mindset, a different way of working. But it, if you apply that correctly, it allows for for very large scalability and reduced operational overhead um in well indoor architectures and landscapes
0: yeah that sounds really interesting so yeah i think we we both uh agree that running ec2 instances is not the future of computing so yeah serverless is the way to go and event-driven architectures or event-driven architecture and event-driven compute is a good idea so would calling Lambda functions from Lambda functions be event-driven for you? Or is it still? Or is it also something that, no, that's not event-driven?
1: Well, I think uh, Lambda functions in themselves are very much event-driven. But just using a Lambda function does not make an event-driven architecture. Um, so it's, it's really, it's a, well, architectural pattern, a design pattern that you should apply across the board. And it also applies to things like uh, don't uh, do time-based batch processing, like uh, more classic systems. You would, for example, process all of the, I don't know, invoices or uh, or whatever kind of information that they process in the middle of the night, because that's when the systems are, um, uh, are uh, available or when the data is available. And every night there, there's this batch, uh, it's being processed and, uh, and there are large clusters maybe spun up or something. And then at the end, it's done. That That is not event-driven uh, because the, well, literally the event or the, the the occurrence, the batch is not driven by an event. It's not driven by something that actually happened in your landscape. So if you would, translate that to a more event-driven uh, architecture what you would do is as soon as data comes in as soon as an invoice is paid or as soon as somebody does a checkout on a website, you generate an event and immediately you process that event for example by updating your database or, or sending out an invoice uh, or uh, or updating your bi uh, data set and then your backend your downstream systems, are driven by the events that occur in your in your business landscape.
0: So would you agree that event driven architecture always includes some kind of messaging system?
1: Yes, I, I would agree. Uh I I can't really imagine an event-driven system without messaging.
0: So, so it will always be events happening, publishing events, reacting to events, and not just calling things um, or yeah batching things so that, that would be one of the key features would be you have a messaging architecture in what way if it's sns sqs event bridge or whatever but there needs to be some kind of messaging in between parts to be counted as event driven
1: well i wouldn't phrase it like that but uh i would say um i would more look in the direction of synchron synchro- synchronity asynchronousness. Uh, and um, an asynchronity, um, where a system that uh, that is completely synchronous. So, for example, again, let's take the order that is paid, and um, and synchronously the invoice is created and an email is sent. And your systems are being updated, and only then uh, would there be a callback uh to the user that says hey thank you for your payment that could never work that would never scale and the decoupling is really one of the core components that that would make that work so in that case the the order would be paid you would probably validate that they actually have the balance on their credit card or their account and then that's all that you validate and that at that point moment you generate an event that says the order was paid and only then do you send the the, the event down into your landscape uh, to your downstream systems. And that's when billing happens and when the order is processed and the emails are sent and so on. Um and because you you decouple it like that, you automatically use messaging systems.
0: Yep, yeah, that sounds really cool. And yes, the, the way you explained it is this asynchronous and synchronous immediately reminded me of of the opening video of the last reinvent. So I definitely didn't need to put that in the show notes. Well, uh, yeah, having fries one fry at a time. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's uh,
1: Werner also had some trouble with the word asynchronity, So I don't feel too bad that I didn't get that out of my throat too well. Yeah.
0: That that's totally fun. But I will definitely link to this video because I think that explains exactly why synchronous systems will not scale. Um, and yeah, even scale a little bit. So even a normal system just will not behave in a meaningful way if you do everything synchronously.
1: No, exactly, and if, if you look at a landscape like the one at Post-NL, uh, it would be uh, impossible uh, in at any rate to not uh, use some sort of event-driven uh, system because uh, the landscape is so, so large and so many things happen, uh, systems process things at their own pace. And by, for example, putting a queue in between, you really also decouple that processing pace. And if, if somebody suddenly decides to uh, to send, I don't know, 10 million parcels in, in a day, because, I don't know, they got this giant order, all those, those orders just end up at a queue and the downstream process can process them in a minute, an hour or a day, I hope not a day. Uh, but then that decoupling is really a necessity to be building at uh, systems at scale.
0: Yeah, I think the, the same. Uh, yeah, as you said, uh, post uh, is, is one thing. I'm working with banks. It's the same. You cannot just synchronously um, manage payments of customers. You, you have to have some way of um, they're paralyzing this stuff. you cannot say, oh, yeah, I, I cannot process your payment because I'm processing a payment of somebody else. Like, I don't care.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know?
0: So And and that's and there's also these things like validating um, for are you allowed to pay to somebody or is uh, are you yeah there are so many things that banks need to check you cannot do this in a synchronous call to i want to pay that has to be yeah. event driven after the fact
1: yeah you you verify the bare minimum uh that you need to do at that time like are you really who you say you are um and, and at that point it's just up to the downstream systems and also if there there's a failure you have to have some sort of a callback mechanism that says hey we we received your order we said thank you for the order but now there's been a problem with your order so can you maybe go to this page again and do the payment again uh or check your balance and and that also really requires a different mindset uh from more let's say monolithic or or legacy systems that, that you also see where everything is is together and uh you maybe you they're still processing things synchronously. If, if you have that decoupling, you have to start thinking, okay, how am I going to communicate back to the uh, to the user? What is going to be the user experience? Am I going to place a spinner on this page and just wait? Or am I going to send an email? And what are my options there? And, uh, and that is, to me, one of the more interesting uh, challenges around uh, event-driven architecture because you actually change the user interaction because of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, Yeah. I remember one one project I had now where we're creating invoices in different parts of of the flow. So there are different parts of the application that could lead to an invoice being created. And now I could implement it in different parts. Or in this case, I'm just sending an event like somebody paid money. Um, And then another service is just picking up these events and sending invoices. And it doesn't matter where this event came from. It's just, oh yeah, somebody paid money. I will send an invoice.
1: Yeah, um, and that also really allows you to evolve your systems because as as soon as you don't care what an event or where an event comes from, you can start replacing entire uh, services, entire systems, entire applications. It can also really help, for example, breaking down a, a monolith or re-architecting a landscape. Um, and then what works two ways. It works from the producer, the sending uh, and as well as the consumer uh, end because if you're sending an, an, an event that says order paid and you have one system that's receiving that and processing it but you want to replace it well then maybe you can first start by sending out that event to the new system as well run them in parallel and when you're convinced that the new system is completely ready to process production workloads you just turn off the old one and then uh, that way you can really easily and safely migrate systems. And at the producer end, the same thing applies. As long as they as the interface remains the same in an event driven and decoupled world, it doesn't matter uh, which system is actually producing or consuming those events.
0: Yeah, that's two really really cool things. And also, what came to my mind, coming back to synchronous and asynchronous things, creating invoices. Should be a synchronous process because they have like numbers they need to be monotonous um but in this case i don't need to block the producer to no you just cannot pay right now because i'm processing another invoice i'm just oh yeah people are paying things and then a queue is in between and it's creating one invoice after the other so i get a consistent numbering of the invoices but still people can pay in parallel yeah. So that's
1: and, of things. and it also helps your uh, a lot for your reliability uh because if you have a queue and there's a system polling from that queue um it doesn't matter to the queue whether that system is unavailable for a given amount of time uh it can be down for an hour uh and if then the system comes back up after that hour it can just starts polling uh where it left off uh so the the systems are really also independent of each other.
0: Yeah. So if my, in, in this case, if my invoice service just doesn't work, I could just shut it down and say, oh yeah, you, you can buy all the things, you're just not getting sent invoices, but everything else works and then start it up when the bug is fixed and then it's sending out all the invoices. for yeah. at the time it was offline.
1: Yeah. And uh actually that, that makes me think about uh one very important metric on uh, SQS queues because Uh, Of course, when you build systems, you you have to operate them as well. You have to uh, make sure that everything is working and that you're notified if things are not working. And in in AWS, you have CloudWatch alarms and metrics for it. But you can choose which metrics uh, you you use. So, for example, you could have a Lambda function um, and trigger on the amount of failures of that Lambda function. But failures... Always occur as again Werner said, everything fails all of the time, and it's not necessarily a bad thing if a lambda function fails. If automatically it uh, retries to process that message again, so al- putting an alarm on lambda failures can lead to false positives, and and that has its own uh, set of problems. But instead, you could also uh, alarm on the queue. And say, for example, hey, tell me how many messages there are on the queue. And you could say, well, if there's a million messages on the queue, there's probably something wrong. Um, and that is that is absolutely a valid metric. But how do you choose whether you alarm on 10 messages, 100 messages, 1,000 messages, or a million messages? It really depends on the volume uh, that, that you're processing as well. And also, as AWS says, don't try to... Um, uh, assume or predict your capacity needs, right? So so it's it's definitely not a good idea to make assumptions on how many messages are good or bad. But then there's one metric that is uh, the approximate maximum age of a message on a queue. And that is really a powerful message in, in event-driven uh, or uh, uh, a powerful metric in event-driven architectures. Because you could say, hey, assume as the downstream system is not able to process these messages within 10 minutes, that's a business problem. And that's when I want an alert. And I don't care how many times it tried, whether it needs 50 tries or one try as long as it succeeds within those 10 minutes. Uh, and, And those are really interesting operational questions and challenges as well.
0: Yeah. That's a really cool metric. I never thought of this. The other thing, what I've seen is using these, um, Math metrics in CloudWatch to say yeah I don't care about how big or yeah how many messages are in the queue as you said you don't should you should not assume capacity but I can see if it's like ten times the amount than an hour before or a day before like oh yeah this is kind of not expected
1: yeah yeah that is uh, you can do the metric math and there's definitely some some really powerful uh, features there. Uh, but of course, there's also uh, anomaly detection, yeah, um, and that is also uh, really interesting because, um, as uh, as I say, it's it's sort of democratizing uh, the machine learning capabilities that uh, that Amazon uses internally, and it's just literally one click of a button or or one line of code to enable it, and uh, then the the Amazon systems start to predict usage patterns on your, uh, on your systems. And alarm, you, you specify a band or a threshold, and alarm when when you leave that band of uh, predicted values. And that is really powerful when you have some sort of seasonality. For example, in personnel, Sundays are almost, we almost do nothing. Like our systems are idling or completely turned off on, on Sundays. This is simply nothing happening. But uh, Tuesdays are always super, super busy, but then Tuesday at noon is the most busy and Tuesday in the evening is not that busy. So that becomes really difficult to predict uh, in a math uh, and, and set values. But if you use anomaly detection, it just detects that pattern. Sunday is nothing. Tuesday at noon is really busy. And only when when there is a variation, a large variation within that band, you can trigger an alarm. And using those technologies that are available to you really uh, um, makes it easier to operate workloads on AWS.
0: Yeah, so coming back, we now discussed a lot about queues. So does this also mean that you would recommend always using a queue, even if you're using something like SNS for fan out, or everybody's using EventBridge for everything, but you should still hook up queues to these events and then use Lambda functions? or hook up the Lambda functions directly to the events?
1: Um, If you would have asked me this half a year ago, I would say, well, in some cases, probably you can do without a queue. Uh, Then I got burned a few times. And at this point, I would say, uh, queues are really my favorite technology in all of AWS, even though uh, I use EventBridge extensively. But we literally switched from using EventBridge invoking uh, Lambda directly to EventBridge putting something on a queue and then uh, invoking uh, Lambda functions. And the main reason that we changed there is a relatively new feature that allows uh, you to throttle the um, or to set the maximum concurrency of a Lambda function that is consuming from an SQS queue. So what we've seen is event bridge if you do for example a replay can suddenly send a million messages as soon as uh, as quickly as possible to a downstream lambda function and the lambda function can probably handle it but what if that lambda function is calling a downstream system that cannot handle it you have a problem and there's no no rate limiting or throttling uh, capabilities there at all you can use reserved concurrency but that's that doesn't work at scale or for other reasons. So now what we do is EventBridge writes to SQS if suddenly it has a million messages, just writes the million messages to SQS. It's like no effort for the systems at all. And then the Lambda function consumes from SQS, but that has a maximum concurrency of 200. So now our downstream system is guaranteed to never receive more than 200 events uh, in parallel. And that really protects the downstream uh, systems Plus a queue is is much easier to use uh, for uh, to deal with um, operational incidents. For example, if you misconfigure the lambda function or you have a bad uh, bad update, a bug in your code, and the lambda function just crashes, doesn't matter. message is still on the queue. And then you retry and retry, you update the lambda function and the lambda function works again. And just start reading from the queue again. It's immediately fixed. Um, so there, there's a lot of benefits from queues. I'm actually uh, working on a talk about the internal workings of the applications that we built. And one of the slides that I have says queues, queues everywhere. Because okay. that's really the new architecture. Okay,
0: so as I'm thinking, uh, coming from a infrastructure as code, CK world, I would even create a construct for this. That whenever you create a Lambda function and hook it up, it's always building a queue under the hood and not hooking up things directly to event bridge. So users can still say, hey, I want to listen to this event. And then it would automatically create a queue, register the queue to the event bridge, and then having an event trigger on the queue to Lambda.
1: Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, We actually, well, we have two constructs that we use in, in combination often. One of them is a queue with a number of standard alarms, which for example, include uh, the uh, approximate maximum age uh, alarm uh, and some things around encryption and KMS and so on. And we have another construct that we always use for Lambda functions that uh, will always um, create a version on top of the Lambda function um, and always create a CloudWatch log group so that we're in control of when we delete that log group and can set the retention period yeah. and so on. But it's a great idea to combine those two maybe in in an L3 construct. Yeah,
0: so it's always, I want to have something listening to this event and it always does queue with all the alarms and a and Lambda function with all the things and you don't need to, oh yeah, I should, should I use a queue or not? Don't care, just use this construct and it will do the queuing for you.
1: I, again, of course, in the end you should always have some sort of escape hatch and maybe don't do that there's always going to be use cases where maybe the added latency is not what you want or you do need a direct call back uh, to a user or uh, maybe it's cost prohibitive at uh at super high volumes but but in in general i think this is a good idea
0: yeah definitely you can still use the normal lambda function construct but often i see things like yes i'm maybe i should use a queue but that's more lines of code that I need. I need to provision the queue and I need to configure everything. Ah, let's just hook it up directly. Um, and if I have a construct that's doing all this for me, it's yeah, way more natural for people to just, yeah, let's use it. It's there. I, I don't care because it's the same complexity for, for me. So I've just use the queue version um, and then people will start using it instead of, yeah. oh, I don't want to think about it. Let's use the direct integration.
1: Yeah, no. absolutely. And that's really uh, the the value that we also saw in the version Lambda function. In a production system, I would say, always use version lambdas. don't use latest uh, because there's certain edge cases, especially at volume, where that is going to trip you up. Um, And and just having one standard construct as a, uh, let's say, best practice uh, is definitely worthwhile.
0: Version Lambdas were a discussion I had with a client yesterday. So I think I think yes, there's definitely the 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 benefits of yeah you know what's happening in this case it was in combination with step functions yeah. like oh yeah there's running processes they want to have their version that was working with this version of the step function on the other hand if you then do an update by default um, CloudFormation will remove the old version yeah which breaks everything yeah so you need to configure it to retaining old versions which then means nobody's cleaning up old versions
1: yeah. Uh, yeah, there, there's definitely some complexity there. Um, of course, well, you can also use aliases uh, to to point to a specific version, but then you still have the cleanup problem. This is not a problem that we ran into. the The problem that we ran into was uh, a lambda function being updated, um, and the the code being um, changed. But for example, the environment variables or the IAM role has not. Been updated yet, and then you have a sort of mismatch, um, and that that is really really annoying and leads to really weird behavior, especially at at high volumes. And by just introducing a version always, uh, you make sure that the entire uh, collection of resources that you need for a Lambda function is deployed first, and only then do you switch over to the to that deployed uh, set of components. That that really helps.
0: That's definitely an interesting take. I didn't ever think of a Lambda function not being atomic, but yes, the code update and the environment variable update is not visible at the same time. Yeah, and are some milliseconds or seconds in between and with high volume that might bite you.
1: Yeah, and also there again, uh, just adding a queue in front uh, can already help you a lot because then if it crashes, uh, because there's an uh, incompatibility between the environment variables or the lambda uh, role and the lambda function, it's just returned to the queue, and then a second later it's retried. So uh, that's another well, another benefit for queues.
0: Yeah, yeah, that sounds sounds really cool. So, any other aspects of event-driven architecture that you think are that should
1: definitely be mentioned? Yeah, one one really big topic. Uh, that we're working at at PostNL is uh, schemas and contracts. Oh yes, um, and I will actually be giving a talk about this in the, in a few places in the in the upcoming months um, about how to design and use events in an event driven architecture, how to write them and how to consume them uh, in a way that you can have confidence in your in your landscape and. What I mean by schemas and contracts for people who are less familiar with it is that you define the exact structure of your event. So you literally say, well, it has this data key and under data key, there is a type and there's a name and there's an address and uh, and there's a, I don't know, weight of the parcel. And for each of those fields, you specify what their type is. It's a string or an integer or it's a Boolean or any other kind of type. And you specify whether they are optional or required. And if they're required, then they, they will always be there. But if they're optional, they might be missing every now and then. You can even specify ranges or enumerations. So it will always only be one of these values or only be between these values. And even regex is supported in, in schemas. And that allows you to very clearly specify what the exact event will look like and by specifying that in a schema you can uh, apply a contract between a producer and a consumer where you as a producer promise this is the data that i will send this is the contract that we agree to and then the consumer can have a lot of um, uh, peace of mind that well we have this contract so i don't have to do all this defensive coding and don't have to keep all of these spe- uh, specific variants of the event in mind, I can just know that this is what I always uh, will receive. But if you want that uh, that peace of mind and that, that guarantee, you're actually going to have to build some systems to, to actually guarantee that the contract is also followed. Because if it's a soft contract, you just say, well, this is an agreement, but I might also just not stick to the agreement. Then you might actually crash a downstream system because it might well, expect a value that's there uh, and then suddenly it's not there. And well, software doesn't deal with that very uh, very well. Um, so then you get into the area of contract validation or schema validation. And that's in, in advanced uh, event-driven architectures, a core component to well, let's say protect the stability and the mission criticality of your uh, of your systems. Where one system produces events, then that goes to another system that validates. Hey, does this match the contract? And only when it validates that and and the event is approved, is it sent to the downstream system. And that is really the responsibility of of the event broker uh, that my team is building. Uh, and that really. Uh, helps us build mission-critical event-driven systems. And if you don't build something like that or have a very mature team that, that is capable of never breaking a contract, um, it's going to hurt at larger scales.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a very, very good topic. And I think it also helps of taking shortcuts. Like if you, yeah, let, let's just communicate with the other team and yeah, we were just changing something. And nobody knows about it. And yeah, we, we, we talked with the receiver and everything was okay. But then you forget another recipient of the data and everything breaks. Or somebody else was, oh, I, I didn't tell you, but I'm also listening on this event. Exactly. And and if it's really in a schema registry, you can say this. Is, there is a process to follow when changing things. Or, or it's not just, hey, I'm changing things. Everybody agreed or nobody disagreed or something like that. And there's a whole another can of worms, but I don't think we we can tackle this today. Is about versioning them. If yeah. you have contracts, how do you version things? Do you create new events? Do you version events? Do they reach a different topic, or is it within the same um, queue that you just get different t- uh, versions of events? Uh, but I think that's a, a completely another can of worms because that's really really. It can get messy, but it's very important because all the things you tackle at this point will not bite you later in production.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's definitely also a topic that we work on. And uh it is a, a complex and, and broad topic, but in a general sense, I would say um if you want to update your event and it is not a breaking change, so for example, you add a field, then you can say, well, this is still the uh the same uh the same event it's just well version 1.1 or something mm-hmm. it's just a little bit uh larger than it used to be but if you have a breaking change for example I used to send this value as a string but now it's an integer um then you should not be allowed to to update that specific event or that's a specific schema in fact what I say is if you have a breaking change it's no longer the same event it is a new event um and that means well that you need a different queue different event stream and have your consumers probably migrate to that new event before you can turn off the initial event
0: yeah i think that, that, that that's a clean approach to not put a burden on, on somebody else like oh yeah i'm changing this type everybody else now needs to have a type validation and now that's your responsibility so
1: yeah and data ownership data design and data uh um uh, responsibilities are really a big topic especially at Enterprise scale, uh but but a very interesting challenge to try to uh to implement yeah
0: yeah I think this has really been great um where can people find more about you online
1: uh, I'm on Twitter uh my Twitter name is Donker's good uh, with OOD at the end uh because the other one was taken I'm also uh, at Mastodon. you can find me at LinkedIn. Uh, I'm at YouTube, but just Google my name and uh, the SEO will do its work.
0: Yeah, I will put it also in the show notes. Thanks. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm Thorsten Hugo, and I hope you join me again next time for Cloud Automation Weekly.